Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When the world shut down in March 2020, I found myself like so many other working mothers in this country. I was trying to help our middle school aged daughter get used to remote schooling, trying to reassure her that she would be okay, that we were safe, and that we would get through this together. I was trying to provide that same sense of security and support to my students that I was teaching remotely at Quinnipiac University. That increasingly blurry boundary between work and home life was challenging, and it had me on the verge of burnout. But I realized that I wasn't alone in that feeling and that experience. Three years later, we have a better understanding of the toll that the pandemic has taken on women in the workforce and the broader caregiving crisis. The pandemic launched necessary conversations about caregiving and the people who provide that care. It's in part what inspired Angela Garbez's book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. As she was caregiving during the pandemic, Garbez thought a lot about the people who do paid care work. In her book, she cites a TED Talk from Aijin Poo, founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. It's this work that is not even referred to as real work. It's not referred to as help. It's often seen as unskilled, not seen as professional. And race has played a profound role in how we value this work in our culture. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we examine the way that we think about parents and care workers in the U.S. And we talk about how our ideas about mothers and fathers are often shaped by racial and gendered stereotypes. Later, UConn professor Kari Adamsons talks about what children really need from their parents, regardless of the assumptions that we make about family structure. But first, Angela Garbez is author of Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Angela, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me, Kalila. Let's start with a very basic question, and that is, how do you think of care work and how do you define that work? Yeah, so I think of care work, which I would define as keeping yourself and your people alive and whole and healthy, as healthy as possible. Um, I really think that care work is the only real work that humans have to do on this earth. And um, we take a lot of care work for granted, but um, care work is really the work that makes all other work possible. If you um, weren't housed, um, didn't have food to eat, couldn't clean yourself, um, that really limits the number of things that you could go out and do. Um, and as far as it being the most important work that we could be doing on earth, really, you know, keeping ourselves alive, you just, you don't have, you know, ask a trans person, ask a black woman, ask anyone from a marginalized community. It's actually much harder for some of us to keep ourselves and our people alive than it is for others. I want to pull out something you just said, because it's so different from the public perception of this. You talked Mm -hmm. about care work as 
not just caring for others, but caring for ourselves, keeping ourselves alive and healthy. And too often, it's always this outward, what we do for others. But you're also centering the ability to keep yourself alive and healthy and connected. Why do you think it's important to center that as we understand care work? I mean, I'm a parent of two young children. And I will say that, um, I will admit that I didn't start deeply thinking about care work until I became, until I had myself some dependents and (laughs) was thinking about uh, taking care of them. Uh, But really, we have to take care of ourselves because for me, I cannot be anywhere close to the parent that I want to be for them if I'm not taking care of myself. When I show up um, and I haven't tended to my feelings or my needs, uh, I can be very short with them. I can be angry with them. Um, And it creates a lot of things that I have to explain later and apologize for. But when I am taking care of myself, listening to my needs, I can show up more as a whole person and um, give them the love and security that I I want to. And life is just a lot smoother. Well, I appreciate you for naming that because too often there is this shame that goes along with it or this thought that it's selfish to talk about your needs, your feelings, your sort of exhaustion and how that plays out for others. And naming it not only helps indict the stigma, but it also affirms that at the base of this work is the human capacity to do all the things that we're called on within our limits. And this is a book that you see as a distinction between mothering and motherhood as it's traditionally defined. What's that distinction and how does it play into the broader things you're talking about? Yeah, well, I want to pick up on something that you just said, which is I I want to name that it is specifically a thing that happens to a lot of mothers, um, which is this feeling in America, we really tend to associate mothering and motherhood with a state of sacrifice. I mean, that's what was definitely modeled in my home. Love is sacrifice. Having children, taking care of people means putting yourself and your needs second. And so that's absolutely a cycle that I see happening um, in my own family and in a lot of families, people that I'm close to. And it's something that I'm actively trying to, it's appropriate, I'm actively trying to disrupt that in my life. (laughs) So, um, but as far as motherhood and mothering go, I want to start by saying that I um I wrote this essential labor is my second book and the first book that I wrote was called Like a Mother and it's called a feminist journey through the science and culture of pregnancy and I included in Like a Mother some examination and some talk about I interviewed someone who's trans to talk about the experience of people of pregnancy and birthing for people who don't consider themselves women or mothers. And, you know, I even said, like, maybe this, the title of this book, which I did not select, um, <laughs> would, would maybe be sort of outdated as our ideas of gender, um, you know, continue to evolve and expand as they should. And when I, so I was like, okay, I think I did a good job. I'm, I'm being an ally. I'm learning as I'm going. And when that book came out, I heard from a lot of people who said, you know, your book is important to me. Um, it means a lot to me, but as someone who identifies outside of the gender binary and who does not identify as a mother, I actually think it's pretty essentialist and very limited. And it was a little bit hard to hear at first, but I, I, I absolutely think that that's true. I was like, I can take that criticism. And as a woman of color, it's really important to me that when I think about 
feminism and being a feminist and doing feminist work, um, it's very important for me to take as many people along as I can, because I see how feminism has excluded women of color. And so if I'm not trying to do that actively, then what am I, what am I doing? So, you know, I really believe that caring for children and caring for our elders, all care work, it's not an individual uh, choice, right? It's not, and it's not an individual responsibility. It's a societal community responsibility. Um, no one makes it through, you know, the helplessness of infancy in childhood and the kind of tumult of adolescence and early adulthood without care. And not just like one parent is not enough. Two parents are not enough. You need like teachers, aunties, um, therapists, babysitters, <laughs> social workers, right? There's any number of people who have hands on life, right? And all of us have benefited from the care of many people. And so I was thinking about how um, how could we call people in to this work? And I'm not the first person to say this. I turned to Black feminist scholarship and a book called Revolutionary Mothering, which was uh, edited by Alexis Pauline Gums and China Martins and Maya Williams. And really, they were like, mothering is a verb. And it's true, you know, I mean, being a mother is a very important identity for a lot of people, and it is for me. But I realized I lose nothing. It costs me nothing to expand this definition, to be more inclusive, and to invite more people in. And really, when it comes down to it, the work of mothering, and my work as a mother, is a lot of repetitive action. And so mothering as a verb made a lot of sense. Um, and they really define mothering as as the work of anyone who is involved in nurturing and affirming life. And I just love that. I love that because it includes everyone. Like we are all called to mother in some way. And I want people to really feel like this is for everyone. This work is for everyone and it benefits everyone. I think it's a much more inclusive way of thinking about mothering. But I also think, Angela, it more closely aligns with different cultural traditions and practices that see yes. nurturing children as really a part of a collective, of a multi-generational or what you yes. know some people call the village coming yeah. together to do that. And having the book in the world at this moment you know, it was born out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it certainly raises things that predate the pandemic. In some ways, the, the pandemic sort of highlighted yes. why our traditional views weren't working. What was going yeah. on for you that made you say, this experience that I'm having isn't just my own, but it connects to this and I want to write about it in order to highlight that? So in the pandemic, we kind of well, so in the in the like sort of early, the pandemic is still happening. So I mean, I, I don't want to talk about it at all in the past tense. But you know, in the early days of the pandemic, you know, spring, summer, fall of 2020, um, you know, when childcare centers closed and when schools closed, we were lost, right? Like people were really lost. And this is something we started talking about, you know, the care crisis. But many of us know that the care crisis predates the pandemic, and it will continue. Um, because really, we have no adequate career structure in the United States. It's really until your child is six, you're entirely on your own, right? Like figure out private childcare, daycare, preschool. And I think that 
So many of us have known like what juggling that is like, what sort of financial choices you have to make. Many people have to choose between taking care of their children or having a job because, you know, oftentimes the cost and your salary are the same, or sometimes your salary is less than the cost. Um, So this was a reality that many people were living in. But what I saw in the pandemic when people were unable to... um, outsource that care work without nannies, without childcare professionals, without sending your children to school. Um, they really were like, oh no, um, what am I going to do? <laughs> and and especially privileged people who had never really thought too hard about that outsourcing kind of took it for granted that they could afford to do that. Um, and I want to, I'm going to generalize here, but a lot of that is Privileged people and a lot of white privileged people um, suddenly were like, "Uh oh, women were like, I've leaned really hard into my career, which is where I'm supposed to find meaning and satisfaction. And yet somehow it all comes down to me. Um, I'm responsible. And this is when we were starting to see people talking about how we don't have America doesn't have a social safety net. America has mothers. And in September of 2020, 865,000 women left the workforce in one month. I don't want to say left, sorry. They were really forced out of the workforce um, because they couldn't be online school proctors and care providers and do the professional work all at once. And so for me, I kind of saw this moment, you know, there was a a very well-known food writer um, named Deb Perelman who writes Smitten Kitchen, which is a wonderful blog. I want to just say that. I'm not trying to come for Deb. But um, she wrote an, an op-ed in the New York Times that was like, let me say the quiet part out loud, which is that you're allowed to have a job or you're allowed to have children. And she talked about how they've they had continued paying their nanny in the pandemic, even though the nanny wasn't working for them anymore because the nanny had to take care of her own children. And I was like, okay, here it is. Here it is in the New York Times. Like this is someone wrestling actively with their privilege and saying this. And I was like, this is not a new issue. And so I felt like here's a moment. I wanted to take advantage of this moment where like the curtain has been pulled back. We all see it. And I can't go back. (laughs) Like normal pre-pandemic was already unacceptable. And now that we have people like with, you know, cultural financial power, right? I want all of us in on this fight. And so part of writing the book was to take advantage of that moment. I'm not sure that, you know, the change that I thought would happen isn't necessarily happening. Um, you know, I also voted in the Biden administration because they ran on paid leave. They ran on codifying Roe v. Wade. They ran on investing in community-based and home-based care. And the sort of political will for that has dwindled, which is um, really difficult. But I still believe firmly that um, we're a caring majority in the United States. You know, se- seven or eight out of 10 voters support paid family leave. And when you're talking at that, those numbers, like that transcends political parties. That's Angela Garvez, author of Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. When we return, Angela talks about the legacy of American colonialism and how it's led to a disproportionate number of Philippinex nurses dying from COVID. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking with Angela Garbez about her book, Essential Labor, Mothering and Social Change. It's not your typical parenting advice or how-to handbook. It's a blend of memoir, a call to action, and a history lesson that's based on Angela's research and her own experience as a mother. As to how her own family history became part of the book. It's it's kind of laughable now because the book is so deeply personal, but it wasn't what I expected. You know, I wrote this proposal and I was like, la la la, I'm going to write a history of caregiving in the United States. And I really wanted to look at how we got to a place where, again, I think care is the most essential work that we have to do. And in America, we are very reliant on it's on women to do that work. And we expect many mothers to do it for free. Or if we outsource people, we are hiring predominantly women of color to do it and we pay them poverty wages. And that's really shameful. And so I kind of wanted to understand, like, how did we get to this place? And then and then also think about how this work, which is hands-on, frontline, caring for the next generation of people, really has a, the possibility for, for creating this society that we want and passing down the values that we want to the next generation. So I was really struggling, to be honest, Kalila. I was like, okay, um... I believe that the reason, you know, everything about the devaluation of domestic labor in this country is is a direct result of slavery in America. So um, the home has always been a workplace for Black women. And so, you know, slaves were emancipated, but uh, women are still doing this work. We were so comfortable seeing Black women doing domestic labor, women of color now, um, and seeing them as sort of less than deserving and seeing this work as unskilled. And I just couldn't totally figure out how best to tell that history um, because I was like, these aren't my ancestors. So I was sort of struggling with that. But I'm first generation born here. My parents are immigrants from the Philippines. They came in 1970. And there's a really sort of not very often discussed history of American colonialism in the Philippines. So the Philippines was an American colony for the first half of the 20th century. And when it became a colony, the United States was like, okay, we, I guess having a colony kind of goes against democracy and like self-governance. So we're going to recast it. And they said what they were doing in the Philippines was benevolent assimilation. And so they established public schools that were English language, English based. And so my parents grew up speaking English along with their native dialects. And um, then the United States government also set up nursing schools and medical schools. And my parents were trained as nurses and doctors. And my dad was the first person in his family to go to college. And the way Americans presented this to Filipinos was like, this is economic opportunity. This is a, a way for you to have a better life as a professional working person. And there's truth to that. But internally, 
Americans talked about it as a way of sanitizing and civilizing people who they thought were inherently diseased and backwards. Um, they were they talked about civilizing your, their little brown brothers. Um, and so this, these, this was my parents' experience, though. And then in 1965, um, conveniently coinciding with a healthcare worker shortage in America, the United States uh, decided to lift quotas on immigration, which had been very low. Um, and so my parents, they lifted it for highly skilled immigrants. And my parents qualified for this. And my grand, my maternal grandparents told my mother, like, you need to go to the United States, work as a nurse and send money back. She's the seventh of nine children and we need help sending your sisters to college. So she and my father went and, you know, the idea was that they were going to come back um, after a few years, but they, my mom wanted to stay. And so I was thinking about all of this. And these are questions I've had my whole life, but in the pandemic, there was a statistic that emerged, um, which kind of set my whole book in motion. And that was that Filipino nurses, who many of, there were several waves of nurses who emigrated to the United States after 1965. And Filipinex nurses are 4% of the U.S. nursing population, but they are 34% of COVID-related nursing deaths, which is a huge disparity. And when I read that, it really hit me. I was like, oh my God, this could be my mother. This could be aunties of mine. This could be a lot of people that I care about. And the reason why that disparity exists is because Filipino nurses are overrepresented in ICU and critical care. And that's because throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they took jobs in the ICU because they were more physically intimate with patients, and they were jobs that white nurses didn't want to take. And this is a very familiar narrative, right? Like immigrants do the jobs that um, white Americans often don't want to do. Um, and so it all sort of clicked for me, and I was like, okay, now I'm cooking with gas, because this is how tell the story of caregiving in America. My ancestors were not enslaved, right? Like this, our individual family experiences are different, but it's the same forces, the same forces that we're all living under and that damage all of us. And those are colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, <laughs> exploitation, right? That all of that. And so that's really how that story got woven in. And then I was just like off and running after that. Um, it felt like the right way to tell that history and underrepresented history. And it was something that I'd been thinking about um, all my life. And it was another way of sort of having, I mean, the book is also an argument for solidarity, like cross-cultural solidarity, um, you know, socioeconomic solidarity between people who have more privilege and, and care workers who are poor, right? And so low income. And so I wanted to sort of like like make that case. Like we we have so much more in common and we are affected by the same things. And that's my very long answer to that question. <laughs> no, I, I think it's such an important answer. First of all, I'm still stuck and struck by the stat on the percentages yeah. of women because Angela, I don't think I've heard that in any other space. As we talk about the disparities, the disparate impact of COVID yeah. on particular communities and mm -hmm. always asking the question of why, and that it's mm -hmm. not about individual choice. There are these structural factors yes. that made that possible. Yeah, That then leads me to the subtitle of your book, Mothering as Social Change. When you talk about these issues, when you write about their connection to history, how we are still affected by these colonial legacies, these capitalist yeah. legacies, 
how do you then see mothering as a site of social change and a way to disrupt and dismantle what we've seen over time? To go back to this idea that, you know, I'm not writing a how-to book on parenting, like, to be clear, listeners, I I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Like so many of us, I'm making this up as I go along this life and specifically my parenting. But I feel very strongly and I feel many people of my generation and younger feel this way, which is that I feel like a lot of us are caught between the way that we were raised and the way that we really want to live. Right. I hear white people acknowledging like I I have this privilege and I want to do something about it. I don't know what to do. Right. And so I think it's really overwhelming. And I think a lot of us, um, you know, the last thing we need is like a, a list of things to do. Those of us who are like just trying to make it through a day, like trying to pick up the kids, trying to like take them to the activity, trying to get dinner on the table, just 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 trying to make it and haven't been allowed to process our grief over loss, the tremendous loss that we've experienced over the last couple of years. Um, But I get overwhelmed when I think about like, how do I change things for the better in our culture? Because I I really want that, right? I want to be part of dismantling white supremacy in the United States. How do I do that? Um, And you know, there's people who can donate money. There's people who make calls. There are people who are activists, right? But I think we need people at all levels. And one of the things that I'm reminded of is like having children, spending time with young people is is such a tremendous opportunity to do that. You have multiple opportunities day in and day out. You know, I think about as a woman of color, how, God, I mean, I'm 45. I'm still doing this work every day. Like, but realizing like I'm enough as I am, you know, that I deserve all of the things that, you know, my white male peers have had and felt entitled to their whole life, right? Like, Those kinds of things are so basic. And so many of us um, grow up feeling like we don't deserve those things or we can't ask for those things. And I'm raising two daughters and I want them to know they are enough. I want them to know, even though this country doesn't guarantee it, that they have full body autonomy. Their bodies are theirs. And those the decisions that they make with them are entirely theirs alone. And, you know, structurally, those kinds of ideas are not supported. And that's why mothering all of us who are called to do it, which is all of us, right, in whatever way we can as an aunt, as a mentor, you know, as a friendly stranger, you know, like um, we can shape those things for children. We can insist on their inherent worth. We can tell them that your bodies exist for, God, they're so good at keeping you alive. It's not about aesthetics, right? Like you are, you're entitled to joy and pleasure and rest, Um all of those things. And that's why I really think mothering is one of the most powerful things that we have. And it's work that we can do day in and day out. And, um, you know, I think a lot about how in the pandemic, we talked about essential workers, you know, and this is partly how the book was born. You know, we were talking about healthcare workers, sanitation workers. And I was like, oh yeah, those people are all essential. And then I was like, what about me? <laughs> what about parents? Like I'm out here working 24 seven. I'm keeping my children alive. I'm keeping my community safe by keeping us isolated. I really want mothers, parents, caregivers um, to understand that they are also essential and the lessons that we impart and the behavior that we model for children has a direct impact on our future. And you also say in the book and in your writing in that theme of being enough, that people have worth outside of being a mother 
or outside of being a worker and being able to lean into that, not as some defining category, but to see that as an experience and a connection. Yeah. And I want to think about you're raising two daughters. You know, I'm, I'm raising a daughter as well. And being in that in between, between the future we want for them and sort of the experiences that we've had to help us understand some of the challenges that exist, it begs the question, you talk about the importance of finding community. What do you say to listeners who are like, look, I'm struggling trying to make it through the day. I would love Mm -hmm. to be in communion and have that kind of support. What do you say to people about trying to build community with intention? Yeah, you can have that. You can. Um, You will. I believe you will. It does take intention. It takes time. It's not the most efficient work, but it is an investment. And it pays dividends. Um, but I get it. Like, again, I have the one who said, like, you don't need another thing to do. But um, it's too much. Like, we're not meant to do this. To go back to something you said, like, well, you know this for a fact. For centuries around the globe, people raised families in community. It's really important to say that the way we live in America right now is very distinct, very unique, and very inhumane. Right. Like in this idea of worth that we have, it's because we tie human rights to work. And that is so shameful and wrong. Right. To get um, to have housing, to have health care. Right. To have child care, to be able to afford to do that. You need to have a job. Why on earth do we we tie health to working a job? Like we are just deserving of those things as people. And so community, loving community and support is also something that we deserve. But we are all kind of tricked into this idea that we're looking out for number one and that nuclear families, like I look out for mine, right? But the truth is it's all around us. Um, Marginalized people have, you know, in when people were enslaved in America, people made kin because families were literally separated from each other. And that should sound familiar because families are being separated at the border, right? Like this is by design, by intent to rob us of the community and those kins and those, and and those ties. And we are human beings. We are social by nature. We need care. We want to give care. We love. And, you know, the most, the most valuable things in life are those of being seen, being accepted, right? Like you can't place a value on those things. And I want to remind us that those are all things that we are deserving of. And yes, it takes time, but it's not hard, right? Like you will find that people, People respond. I mean, it, it does require some vulnerability. It requires maybe striking up a conversation with someone that you don't know that well, right? And offering help. It's also, for some people, it's realizing, especially people with privilege, right? Like, it may not directly benefit you immediately. Offering to, like, have a kid over to your house after school, right? Or bringing dinner to someone, right? Like, but it has, like, there's an emotional co- component to it, right? Like, I just say start small and start where you're at. Strike a conversation in the pickup line, right? Like talk about your care needs. By the way, if you talk about care needs, like talk about the caring majority, I guarantee you everyone you know has a care concern, whether it's after school care, whether it's an aging parent, right? Whether it's my kid is sick and now what am I going to do, right? Once you talk about that with someone, I guarantee you they will share something that is meaningful and that is relatable to you. And that's the thing is like they don't want us talking about care. They, they, the powers that be, right? They don't want us sharing these things because 
because they want us isolated with our like private miseries and problems and collective action and being in community is really one of the only ways forward as far as I'm concerned. It sounds to me, and after reading this book, it sounds like it was really a journey for you, a journey to connect to pieces of your community and identity, connect to who you are and connect to the broader human connection that when people talk about the dignity of work, I cringe because it doesn't Mm -hmm. really affirm the worth of a person that's not tied to what they do or perform. And so my question to you is this, what did you learn about yourself in writing this book? You know, I was really humbled to realize from the day I got, you know, discovered I was pregnant, I was privileged enough. And I think, you know, this is part of youth and being young and immature and selfish as children should be allowed to be. Um, I never really saw my parents as people. I saw them as my mom and dad. Um, I didn't see my mother as a changing dynamic, um, flawed um, and generous person. She was just my mom. And, you know, my parents, as I mentioned, are immigrants from the Philippines. They inherited a lot of baggage being um having been colonized you know they were raised speaking english um and being told that like to be worthwhile and acceptable they had to assimilate they had to be white right they had to be legible to white people they had to be professional um you know whatever our indigenous faith is they were made catholic um which is a very I mean, there's a religion that's like, deny all your body's needs and conquer yourself. So they weren't allowed to be messy, right? And they weren't allowed to question all of the things that I question now. (laughs) And I question all of those things because I was given, I had the opportunity to do that. I was raised here in America and I was sort of free from some of those scripts that my parents had and that my mother had. Um, And I think what I learned was for a long time, I was kind of angry with my parents because I felt that I wanted to talk freely about things, about my body, my emotions, about colonialism and why are we Catholic? And they were like, why do you care? Like, what's the point of asking these questions? Like, we, you have a good life. Um, And in writing this book, I really had to reckon with how I was raised and how so much of how I parent is based on how I was parented. And it's not a rejection of that. It is, um, I'm trying to appreciate that, but also ask for more. Um, for all of us. And I really made peace with the people who raised me. Like my parents do not need my forgiveness, but I kind of was like, okay, like you were just people who were struggling to survive. No one taught you how to parent. Like you were just making it up as you go along as well. And so I learned just how much I am like my parents, how I have a role to play too in in disrupting um, those cycles of trauma that I that are not going to serve me or my children or my parents. And so that um, that's what I learned. And I'm still learning it. Well, I'm grateful to you for asking for more for all of us and for mm. affirming that continuing journey. Angela Garbez is author of the book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Thank you so much. Ugh, thank you, Kalila. Coming up, UConn professor Kari Adamsons questions what many Americans mean by a traditional family. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about caregiving in the U.S. and the many ways that people think about parenting. Our next guest is Kari Adamsons, Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Sciences at the University of Connecticut. Her research focuses on parenting, and we wanted to learn more about what she's learned about the role that fathers play in raising children. Kari, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. So much of your research focuses on the role of fathers in raising children. And in some ways, that's different from what people think of when they think about scholarship on parenting. Why the focus on fathers? Well, as you say, traditionally, when we have studied parenting, it's really been a code word for studying moms. And so the tradition of mothers being the primary caregiver, of being the ones who are nurturing and changing diapers and cooking the food and doing the laundry, that's led most of the research historically to be on mothers if we were studying parents and their influences on children. And so as I began reading more of the research and learning what we knew and what we didn't know, it became pretty clear that we were really sort of in the infancy stages of learning what we know about dads and how they also interact with their kids and can influence their kids in positive ways. Your work focuses on an area that not only has academic and scholarly import, but is also present in sort of public discourse, where often the quote unquote, good fathers are seen as exceptions. And there's this prevailing norm that fathers are incompetent or incapable or uninvolved. And you're really challenging that perception or misperception and showing a more full picture of fathers and their role in parenting. What are some of the other misconceptions that you confront in your scholarship? I I think that's a big one. Um, There's a lot of portrayal in the media of dads as being absent or just being the breadwinner or the disciplinarian, not really knowing what they should do with their kids because the mom is the one who tends to be around more. Um, And so this idea that dads don't want to be involved or don't know how to be involved or <laughs> how don't know how to be involved correctly, according to moms, right? So there's a lot of corrections that happen that, oh, no, they like their sandwich cut this way, or no, you didn't put their diaper on right, or this is how you're supposed to do these things. So there's a sort of managerial role that moms tend to take relative to dads um, that can often be a little off-putting <laughs> to fathers to be told that, you know, you're doing it wrong or you need to do it this way rather than the other way. Um, Um, So I think just this recognition and we're seeing this growing as a society that dads do want to be involved with their kids. There's a growing norm and expectation that dads will be highly involved and nurturing and not just a paycheck for their kids. And so it's good to see this this attitude kind of shifting um, across not just the U.S., but globally as well. I think about my own childhood, whenever you would see a movie or a TV show about a family, the dad was off in a separate room while the mom was giving birth. And then it was all of a sudden, it's all done. Everything's clean and lovely. Now you can come in and proclaim your role in this way. (laughs) Do you think we're shifting away from that and becoming more sophisticated in our understanding of the different roles, not just one singular type, but the different roles that fathers play? 
We absolutely are. Um, it's interesting, you know, again, as you say, when, when I was born, it was unusual that dads would be in the delivery room and be there for the birth. Now it's commonplace and it's the exception if they're not. It's also interesting in that we have these kind of generational cultural narratives that may or may not be actually true in the reality of people's lived experiences. So there's a family historian by the name of Ralph LaRosa who did some work on fathering intergenerationally. And one of the things that he found is that going back at least three generations, every generation of fathers claim to be the first generation to change a diaper. Uh, and so everybody says, well, my dad never did this. I'm the first one to do this. When in fact, actually, probably a lot of the earlier dads did do these things. It just wasn't as visible. And everybody thought that they were the exception, even though it was already becoming much more of the norm. You make a distinction in your research between the terms mother and father. And we're also seeing in a broader sense, a more fluid or flexible notion of gender that may not align with some of, you know, the more quote unquote, traditional ways of thinking. How do you think that the way the public, the way that people think about the roles of mothers and fathers, how can that influence the way that we study these roles? So that's been a really interesting area that I've been looking at recently as we increasingly recognize that not only are gender stereotypes and gender norms not all that helpful, they don't even really reflect the reality of gender um, and that there isn't necessarily just strict dichotomies and binaries between male and female. And to the extent that we treat it that way, we're creating those differences rather than that being any kind of real biological difference between humans. And so as we recognize that both men and women gender fluid, gender non-binary, transgender, it really doesn't matter what the gender of a person is. All children really need is a, at least one caring, competent adult who can look after their needs and meet their needs. It doesn't matter who that person is or what their gender is. And at the same time, we still have so many policies in place that are gendered. We have so many societal expectations that are gendered that the experience of being a mother versus a father in our culture is different. Uh, we have different parental leave policies. We have different parental custody norms following divorce or outside of marriage. We have a number of different things that regardless of whether or not gender differences are quote unquote real, they become real because we treat them as if they are. As we start pushing it to become less about gender and more about parenting broadly uh, and what adults can do to help children, regardless of who those adults are, that's where we'll start pushing the policies to change as well. I'm so glad that you mentioned the policies and the way that they reify differences, yeah. but also I imagine create what could be unrealistic norms and expectations? So if the policy says that the person who is the mother gets more leave time or has a, a you know broader birth in terms of being able to do that, then the expectation would be that they would be involved more or be responsible more. And all of that takes away from the piece of your scholarship that talks about what a child actually needs to be raised in a healthy, loving and safe way. So let's go to that point. You know, what sure. does the research say that children actually need in order to be raised in a healthy way? So it's interesting. So many things about gender have changed so dramatically. And so the way that we just assume is normal or natural 
often was very different if you look across cultures, if you look historically, even in the US, right? This idea that the mom should be a nurturing parent itself is also very new. Marriage used to be very practically based, economically based. Childhood wasn't really a thing. If you go back two or 300 years, even in the US, kids were treated as adults by the time they were seven or eight years old. They were working on the family farm. They were working in the family business or household. And parenting as this nurturing, highly intensive activity wasn't a thing. Um, children were really viewed as, as assets and resources and property, frankly, rather than being this investment in the future. And so it really was with that shift to where as people stopped working on family farms, as men went off to work kind of post-industrial revolution and women stayed home more often to take care of the kids, that's where we really saw this creation of this gendered norm around particularly parents investing at all in that way in their children and it being particularly a mother's job. Uh, and so being able to push back on that a little bit and evolve that even further, it's really just sort of the next evolution as we think about this, because we're realizing that yes, childhood is distinct. They're not just little mini adults. They do have particular needs. Decades of developmental research supports that. And so if we have parents, adults, caring, competent people who engage in warm, supportive care of their children and also set limits and have guidelines and expectations and don't just let them do whatever they want. Um, you know, that really tends to be kind of the secret to the success, right? If you have loving, caring parent or parents and they're there for you and they make sure your needs are met. I mean, really, it's it's pretty much as simple and as complicated as that. I love that. As simple and as complicated. One of the areas that is very simple in some ways and extremely complicated others is when we think about the politics of all of this, the ways that debates about traditional families, a return to traditional families, how that's come up in so many state policies and the realization that there really is no such thing as a traditional family when we <laughs> yeah, think historically, exactly. when we think culturally, when we think globally, what those structures look like. And one of the things I really appreciate about your scholarship is that you are advocating for a more inclusive vision that understands the differing structures of families, but also saying there are cultural norms, there are, you know, sort of countries of origin, different places, multi-generational parenting that happens. And instead of this sort of notion of, of loss about what was lost, let's actually see where people are. How does your scholarship help challenge that thinking about a traditional family to actually, as you say, being realistic about family? <laughs> I always kind of laugh when people talk about the traditional family because what is often meant by this quote unquote traditional family is nowhere close to traditional in any historical or cultural sense. Um, this idea of the breadwinner dad and the stay at home mom and the two and a half children and the dog named Spot and the picket fence, right? That really all came about in the 1950s in the US and it was not typical before then. It has not been typical since then. It has not been typical cross-culturally. Um, it was a very particular and unique moment in time between the after the post-war sort of veteran benefits that were given to some people, not everyone, um, and an economic time that was a boom that allowed this sort of unique 
possibility for one person to really raise and support a family um, and gender norms saying that should be men. And it was very short-lived in terms of it actually even being the majority of households. And it was very limited in who it was the majority for. This was really a very white middle-class type of opportunity. Um, so for example, many Black veterans were denied the opportunity to have the veteran benefits that would have supported this or mortgage policies, which were discriminatory that you know did not make this a possibility for all people in the US. And so this idea that challenging that it ever was traditional and there's a difference between talking about something as typical in the sense that the majority numerically of people do something versus typical in the judgmental evaluative sort of way that, and this is the best way to do it. And we made that leap pretty quickly between this was typical and therefore this is what everybody should be striving to do. And it worked to an extent. There were also a lot of problems that we could spend a lot of time talking about of, of what those traditional families looked like and, and functioned like that were not particularly functional. Um, but this idea that it should be the way we all are, or even that it's even feasible for most people, is time to kind of let go of that. Um, it never was necessarily the norm, and it never was necessarily the best way for families to function. And it's not the way that families can function in the current economic climate and reality. Um, and so being able to, to recognize and kind of challenge that and then talk about, okay, what are, I think it's incredibly empowering that there are so many different ways that families can be successful, that there's not just one cookie cutter recipe that if you don't fall into that, your kids are doomed and you're never going to be happy. Right? That's, that's a very narrow and kind of depressing way of looking at things. And so being able to say, know that there's a tremendous amount of different ways that children can grow up to be happy and healthy and successful and the adults in their lives can be happy and healthy and successful. I think that's, I think that's really tremendously good news. Kari Adamsons is Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Science at UConn. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This episode of Disrupted was produced by Jay Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week.